Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and good to be in the scriptures together um, in our studies of the gospel of St. Matthew. Now, before I get into this text of scripture today, I just want to give a couple brief comments about Truth and Reconciliation Weekend. The sermon is not on that topic. We're just continuing on with our studies here. Um, But this is a time of the year that we commemorate here in our church, and we value it because we view these nations and the work that they have done towards truth and reconciliation, what they've been seeking to do for decades is for their grief and their story and their loss to be not only heard, but recognized. And so when we hear stories of families, basically every First First Nations person you know is impacted by their family history in residential schools. Whether they're a young person or an older person, they're either raised by people who, were, who have gone through that or were lost in that process. And when I hear the stories of unmarked graves, the point that is trying to be made is that children have died without their families knowing, grieving them, or knowing where they're buried. And so for us as part of the church, We hear that and value that story to go, that does need to be recognized, does need to be grieved, and does need to be repented for. That the church's partnership with government is something that we look back on now and go, we don't see that as in line with the gospel of Jesus. And so we aren't afraid of repentance in the church. We don't avoid repentance, do we? Do we want to avoid that in our own lives? We would consider that very unhealthy. Do we want to avoid that as an institution? We believe that repentance leads to redemption and reconciliation. So this is a valuable time for us in hearing the grief of our neighbors. And in order to have true meaningful reconciliation over the generations to come, We need to know who our neighbors are. We need to hear the things that they're grieving. And for our participation in them, we want to mend those things, restore them through our belief in the gospel of Jesus. So I just wanted to give some brief words on that. That's why the collect of this week was themed in that direction. It's why it'll show up in our intercessions today. But we're looking for opportunities to connect relationally And this is a a meaningful time to do that with our neighbor nations. Okay? Now, as we continue our studies here in Matthew, we're looking at Jesus' ethic of evangelism, which has some overlaying themes, I think, with some of what I was just talking about. But Jesus' way of spreading the gospel, his way of enlisting helpers in the gospel, And so last week, we ended with Jesus telling his disciples to earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew seems to pick up on that thought right here in chapter 10, implying that the following verse, that the Father, the Lord of the harvest, has heard this prayer and is now answering it. 
And the way he answers it, his response to the prayer of the Son and the disciples, is to call and equip new laborers to share in that harvest. And so what we're going to see is that specifically 12 apostles. Now, apostle means sent off one. Or the English equivalent would be like an emissary. Now, all followers of Jesus are sent ones. But there's a unique call for these 12 individuals, for these 12 apostles. And it's a unique responsibility which is deemed so important and so essential that Jesus says this in Luke 10. Whoever listens to you, the twelve apostles, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him, the Father who sent me. So that's how closely Jesus ties himself to the twelve apostles. Should we take note of that? It seems significant, doesn't it? It's because of this that what we see is that the early church and the historic church held the 12 apostles in, a high, in very high esteem. They venerated them. They sculpted them into the walls of their churches and always included them in their proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Now, in my almost 40 years in the Canadian church, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached about the roles of the 12 apostles from the pulpit. We just assume it all the time. We expect that everyone knows the purpose, what it's for, but I want to slow it down today and really sink our teeth into it so that we know why Jesus has the 12 apostles, what their significance is, and for us as a church, how it actually has some evangelistic benefit. So I'll explain that as we go. So what exactly was Jesus' design for these 12 apostles. So there's four key marks of the apostolic office, what we'll call it. Is that up there? To bear witness to Christ, to share in Christ's authority over the church, to showcase the unity of Christ, and to evangelize in the power of Christ. So what that means for us is these four key things make up what is known as the apostolic tradition. And what it breaks down to is this, is that we have the apostles' message, we have the apostles' church, we have the apostles' unity, and we have the apostles' mission to the world, which should all be Christ's things. Christ's mission, Christ's church, Christ's unity, Christ's mission, sorry, message. Now each of these things have their own special way of witnessing to Jesus and compelling others to follow him. But here's the thing. These benefits have largely been lost due to the Canadian church's drift from what we call tradition. You would never hear a church today kind of emphasize, we have the message of the 12 apostles, or we are the church of the apostles. You don't hear that talked about very often. You might get some Pentecostal groups that talk about apostolic ministry, meaning more like a kind of prophetic ministry and leadership of the church. But I think we originally got away from this idea of tradition because we wanted the church to become more evangelistic. It's this funny dichotomy of going, we have too much old stuff, let's do away with that and do some different things hoping it will 
encourage or draw young people to come to our church. Now, the irony of it is that we lose some of the essential, I think, strategy that Jesus had in place and wanted for the role of the 12 apostles and that it would continue on to this day. Because here's what people want. They want the original Jesus. They want the authentic Jesus. They want the authoritative Jesus. They want to know why they can have confidence in the Jesus that they're hearing about. And according to Jesus' strategy, the 12 apostles have a role to play in that. So let's break that down. Let's look at that starting in verse 1 here of chapter 10. It begins like this. And Jesus called to them. He called them to Him. St. Clement of Rome, which, who grew up in Paul's church in Rome, 35 A.D. to 99 A.D., he says it like this. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God, thus Christ is from God, and the apostles are from Christ. Both of these orderly arrangements then are by God's will. This is how the early church thought of it. God sends Christ, and Christ sends the 12 apostles that we might know Christ, that we would have the authentic, the legitimate message. And the reason they have the authentic and legitimate message is because Jesus calls the 12 to himself. They're called to be with him, to behold him, to hear him, to experience him, and to essentially have him imprinted onto them. That they're so impacted by and changed in their relationship and in the revelation of what they see in Jesus and beholding all of it, all of their even personal journey is all Jesus imprinting himself onto them that they would then pass Jesus on to others. Deeply personal, isn't it? Because of that personal nature of the imprint, we get these behind-the-scenes stories and pictures in the Gospels. If it wasn't for this arrangement, we wouldn't know about, say, the transfiguration of Jesus because it happens with just him and three apostles. But because the apostles are present in all of those spaces, in quiet moments, in dark moments like the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to hear about it. And we get their witness about Jesus. And so what we have in the apostles, the original 12, is this authoritative summary and capture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what Jesus has accomplished. They pass on to us the cornerstone. And so we have first-hand accounts. We get to see in their first-hand accounts the consistencies about Jesus' incarnation, God in flesh, We hear about the crucifixion. We hear about the resurrection and the ascension. So there's consistency in their account. But then we also get to have an authentic and genuine account from their unique perspective. So when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we get variation. We get differences. We get true human impact in how they understood it, but we get the same Jesus. Right? If four of us go to a movie and watch a film together, and we come away and somebody says, well, what was it about? 
You're going to hear similarities in how they talk about it, but you're also going to hear their unique perspective, aren't you? It's like with me. If I take four of my kids to see a Marvel movie, two of them love it, one of them hated it, and the other one slept through it. So there's a different experience that they all have with the same source material. But honestly, guys, it's because of this beautiful capture of who Jesus is, that's why we do simple things like stand for the gospel reading. Because we're essentially saying, here's the first-hand account of Jesus. And because we love Christ, and we hold the apostolic message as premier, we stand for it. The Anglican tradition, actually, for the gospel reading is we would get a a tall cross on a pole, and it would be walked out into the center of the church, and the deacon, who's meant to represent the mission of the church, brings the gospel reading to the center, holds it up, and then we all stand and reads it from in the people. Isn't that beautiful? And the cross is held up because that's how we read the scriptures, is through the cross of Jesus. So these traditions that the church has kind of gotten away from, because it's like, well, does anyone know what they mean, have great meaning and point to the fact that this is Jesus' design for how his gospel spreads. And so it's this picture of the gospel going out into the world, into the congregation, and being proclaimed. Isn't that beautiful? So that's the first thing. Jesus calls the twelve to himself, to uniquely imprint the message of who he is, mark it onto their very being. Their inner life, their minds, their lives are changed by encountering Jesus and then bearing witness to him in the world. The second part of verse 1 goes on. It says he called to him his 12 disciples. The choosing of 12 apostles is not an accident or coincidental. What else in the Bible is made up of 12 parts? Anyone know? Ten Commandments. But we're talking about 12 things. How many tribes does Israel have? 12. So what we have here is Jesus having the 12 apostles replace the 12 elders and tribes of Israel as the foundation of God's new people, the church. And so part of that role for them is to share in his authority over the church, that they share in his responsibilities there with him as under-shepherds. And so he is the original apostle of our faith, but they share in that apostolic ministry with him. So what that looks like then is Christ's leadership over the church and new covenant ministry to his people is the ministry these 12 apostles are sharing in now. Having received Christ, they lead the church into Christ. And so what we see is the apostles plant churches, teach all that they saw and heard and learned from Christ. They shepherd the church into more of Christ. And they govern over the church as leadership. In the book of Acts, and the epistles, we see them actively building the church on and around and into more of Jesus. But here's the thing, the apostles are not just the apostles of the early church, they are the apostles presently and eternally. And let me talk about that, let me prove that. 
I think we should actually see them as Christ's apostles and as our apostles. That the 12 apostles should have a special place in our hearts in the modern church today. Consider what we read, what we heard in John's Revelation today. In Revelation 4.4, we see that the 12 elders of Israel and the 12 apostles are seated around the throne of God in the heavenly vision. So they have an eternal place and an eternal role. It wasn't like, well, you fulfilled your purpose, now we move on from you. They actually have an eternal function. The 24 elders are seated around the throne. In Revelation 12, verse 1, we see the 12 apostles as the crowning jewels on the crown of the bride, the church. So they're this bright, beaming picture as head over the church with Christ. In Revelation 21, which was our reading earlier, we see the 12 apostles as the foundation stones of the city of God. And each of the gates have their names written over it. Because what's the significance of the gates? The gates are open so that all the people in the world can come into the city of God. They're not defensive with closed gates. They're eternally open for the world to come in to the city of God. So what we see then is that they carry the message of Jesus, but they share an authority over His church that they are meant to be the standard of what we hold to. That we see in them the message of Jesus, but we also receive from them the church of Jesus. So we see the way the church should function and live and be and handle problems and disciple people. We see in the apostles how we should pray. They're the ones teaching us the words of Jesus. And then what we get from them, so we have their message, we have their ministry in the church, and then we have the unity of Christ that they have. Where the 12 tribes suffered from conflict and war, the 12 apostles have miraculous unity centered on Christ. Different individuals, different backgrounds, a whole host of personality types. But just as Christ's church does, and all these different kinds of people, they're meant to be a foreshadowing of what the church is going to be like. All kinds of personalities. All kinds of people and cultures and backgrounds. Religious and cultural pedigree and financial status. All of those things. There's going to be a plurality in the church and the apostles are like a microcosm of what the church is going to look like. But ultimately, in all of their differences, they're in submission to him. And what we see is this beautiful picture in the Gospels of them like jostling for importance. And they're fighting each other and they're competitive and they don't like each other at first. But by the time we see them in Acts, there's this miraculous unity to the apostles. They're not fighting as much anymore. Still got their problems. But there's an incredible sense of unity and clarity in their role together that they share. Because of this, for much of the last 2,000 plus years of the church, churches would, you, would often describe themselves as in unity with the original apostles. That the ongoing process of their message and their ministry and the way their church looked and their unity and their function Churches saw themselves as part of that. The one holy Catholic and what church? 
apostolic church. So they saw themselves in line with that lineage going all the way back to the original apostles. So one of the things you hear a lot about in the historic church is something called apostolic succession. Now, apostolic succession was this idea that the original apostles, as they were nearing the end of their lives, would put in place new people that they've trained and discipled and have the marks and are qualified to fill their role. But the early church didn't call them apostles. What did they call them? Anyone know? Everyone's very hesitant. Deacon? No. They're called bishops. Okay? So that's what the early church started to do. They, they said the 12 apostles are the original, and we're going to start using the language of bishop. And so these successors to the original apostles were held as holding the same ethos of the early church. Now, here's where it gets a little messy. As time goes on through church history, they start to emphasize that I'm a legitimate bishop based on my succession to the original apostles. And then they leave the original message. They leave the original scriptures. They leave these things, but then claim I still have power because of my lineage that they could trace back. To this day, even in the Anglican Church, if you are consecrated a bishop, they can trace your line back from bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop to the 12 apostles, to the early church. You know that? That's a pretty crazy thing. Now, as cool as that is, if you don't have the apostolic message, and if you're not leading the church in the apostolic culture of gospel, gospel culture, is it true, authoritative, apostolic ministry? I would argue not. Because it has to be based on Jesus, not just a lineage of one man to the next. So what we want, though, in our churches, we want the apostolic message of Jesus. We want the apostolic nature of the church, how the church functions according to that message. And we want the unity of the apostles in the church as we are beholden to Christ himself. Now the last piece that we get to is in the second part of verse 1. It says here that Jesus then gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So this last key mark of the true apostolic office is that they're sent to evangelize in power. He gave them what he has, which is his authority. Their proximity to Jesus leads to authority from Jesus. They aren't just sharing in his teaching or his proclamation. They're also sharing in his healing and restoring works that are motivated by compassion. So they're not just heralds. Hey, everyone should know Jesus is here. Jesus has done this. This is the message. They're also meant to back up the message with supernatural ministry. That's intense. He gives them, that's the language here, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think the original 12 apostles are going to have more authority than the average Christian today when it comes to that kind of ministry? 
I actually kind of think they do. Some of you are like, no, there's no way. We're all the same. I'm like, no, I think they're special. I think they get special outpouring and authority that Jesus gives directly to them. We see a crazy amount of healings and miraculous work and fruit from those, from those original apostles. But here's the thing. This reveals, I think, that the power and the impact of the message should have impact on the lives of the people. But it's also the ongoing nature of the church to be, it's natural for the church to be supernatural. So I love that phrase. I think that's the way we should be. We should be naturally supernatural. Now, for too much, for too many expressions of this, supernatural seems to be we're going to do supernatural things in the kookiest way we possibly can. So we're going to do supernatural things, but our personality is going to make it incredibly awkward. <laughs> I actually think the supernatural is so given, is so a part of the church, it should be natural. We can go, we should pray for that. Let's ask for Jesus to come to that. And we don't have to do kooky extra things to make it seem like it's happening. We can trust it actually is happening. And the work is being done. Because what we see is that if the original apostles are going to function naturally in the supernatural, it's essential to their role. And then what we see through the rest of the New Testament church is that they're also sharing in that supernatural, maybe not quite to the same degree, but they are sharing in it. Isn't that true of the New Testament? The Acts church, the epistles, we see Paul talk about healings and prophets and all of these different supernatural ministries that work within the church. So we see then that the supernatural is not just a marker of Jesus' ministry, but now it's a marker of the apostolic ministry and then a marker of the apostolic church. So we see these four things at play and then Jesus names the twelve apostles. In other parts of the Bible, it talks about Jesus staying up all night praying with the Father before He says their names out loud. I just think those little moments are such beautiful moments where Jesus is like, I'm going to stay up all night and pray about this to make sure I'm hearing right. Isn't that beautiful? So here's the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, then Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. These are the 12 apostles of the faith. Now, Stephen, can I talk about our plan out loud? Are you sure? Okay. So Stephen is quickly becoming a resident artist here in our parish. Do you want to just wave, Stephen, in case people don't know you? And Stephen's brilliant. And what he's working on, he started working on this last week, is he's doing different portraits of the 12 apostles that we're going to release this week on our social media with summaries of their life and ministry um, according to Christian tradition. So you'll get to see little profiles of each disciple. Maybe we'll do two at a time or something. And you can kind of familiarize yourself with them in the week ahead of us. So here's the last thing I want to close on. How does all of this strengthen the mission 
of Christ's church? Why do the 12 apostles, how do they have any bearing on our witness to the world here in Christ Church Oceanside and to the island? Here's what I think. If the disciples bear witness to the true Christ, then when we bear witness of the apostolic message, we can do so with confidence and conviction. So part of what that does in us is makes us go, I'm not making this up. I'm not telling you some fabricated version of Jesus that I just think is trendy or I think is comfortable. I'm telling you the authentic, original message of Jesus. And it's bigger than me. And so it should give us a sense of confidence and conviction that this message is historically accurate. This message has been enduring for the last 2,000 plus years and it works. It does stuff. It changes stuff. It helps me. So you don't have to come up with the gospel. You are bearing witness to the original good news of Jesus. You understand how that frees you from going, I struggle to find the right words. It's because it's not your job. Your job is to tell the words that you heard from the apostles through the church. The second thing is this, is that if the apostles share in Christ's authority over the church, then Christ's church, as it follows the traditions, the great traditions of the church, is the apostolic church. So part of our message, and this is part of what I explain to people all the time, is that we're preaching, we're talking about the original message of Jesus. But secondly, the practices of the church are in, have been happening for thousands of years. So we do the central main things. We celebrate the Lord's table because not just it's a tradition, but because it does something. It means something. We pray the prayers that the church has prayed for thousands of years because we are all one church. Instead of it being, well, we're trying to do things cool and different. That's not the message. The message is we're doing things in line with the apostolic church in a way that fits with today. That's our message. But what it does, I think, is it communicates legitimacy. That we're not just making it up. We have the original message and we function within the traditions of the church because they matter. They point us to Jesus and we are part of that original church. The third piece is, with the unity of Christ that the apostles enjoy and showcase for us, that puts us into a position, too, where we can function in the world with generosity, with familial love towards other churches, that we are not in competition. Do you know what's bad for the witness of the gospel? is when churches are competing. When Christians don't like other Christians, that is bad for the gospel. There? So the unity of the apostles means we share that unity. There's lots of differences between us. We're from different backgrounds. We see things differently, but we're united on Jesus. And here's how I function with other churches. I assume we're united on Jesus until they absolutely prove to me that we're not. And even when they're trying to prove to me we're not, I'm still going, ah, come on. I want to be hard to convince. 
that Jesus doesn't have yet. It's kind of how I think about it. But it also speaks to the multicultural nature that the church is meant to have. We're meant to be a bunch of different people united by Jesus. We're meant to have way different personality types and different cultural expressions and and different ways of seeing things but are united on Jesus. That's what the church is meant to be. I'll be honest with you, this is my big complaint, one of a few big complaints about colonialism, though, is coming in and saying, here's the gospel of Jesus, but you have to do it like the English. This church here should have the language and the culture of the Coast Salish peoples in it. That's honestly my theological position. That it should be integrated into life because that's where we live. And that's the way we should treat all other cultures that come from all over the world and hear and receive the gospel of Jesus is that their culture should be integrated into the life and expression of our church. So if you're somebody who comes from a non-white background, you should be working to integrate your cultural expressions here into the life of this church. We want your unique way of expressing that. As long as it's true to Jesus. So piano playing and singing is not the only right way to express worship towards Jesus. Did you know that? Okay? Pipe organs are not the authoritative way of expressing worship to Jesus. Some of you are like, "Uh, maybe. I'll fight you on that one, Ryan. (laughs) That's okay. The point is, is that all people, all tribes, all tongues are meant to worship Jesus. That's the picture we get in the Scriptures. So the last piece is this. If we have the apostolic message and the apostolic church and apostolic unity that's all built on Christ, we are also with them sent to evangelize in the power of Christ in a way that is naturally supernatural. So what that means for us is that we should raise our expectation for the miraculous that's motivated by compassion, what we looked at in our previous text last week, is that our desire to see the miraculous ministry of Jesus function in the world should be driven by compassion for the needs of the world. And here's where I think people mess this up. Is they go, ah, I want to see the supernatural in my life for me. I want it to affirm me. I want to see my faith work. I think that's a little bit selfish. But I understand it. But I also think where it gets messy for us is where we go because I don't see the miraculous for me. I'm not going to believe in it for mission. And here's where I think Christians mess this up, is they go, well, because I'm sick, and because I suffer, and because I have hardship, and I prayed and asked Jesus to do something, and I didn't see it, why would I believe it for somebody else? I'd just be getting their hopes up. But what we see here is these apostles go through all kinds of suffering, all kinds of hardship, and most of them are martyred. But where does the supernatural most come out for them in their ministry? Where is it? In the mission. 
to the world who has needs, who need to see the power of Jesus accompany the proclamation of the Gospel. So here's what that means for us. We should be pursuing seeing the supernatural, but it should be mission-motivated and compassion-driven. Does that make sense? So our expectations should be higher for supernatural in mission. And when we don't see the supernatural in our own lives, what we're actually seeing is supernatural internal ministry happening to us by Jesus. Working in us through our suffering, giving us patience and long-suffering, helping us understand His closeness even though the world isn't serving us. These are all the ministry of Jesus doing greater miracles in our hearts. But we should be having high expectations for the supernatural in the world. As we close, here's what I think that means for us, is that we should be brimming with excitement about sharing the Gospel because we know it's authentic. Because we know the church is in unity, is, is, is submitted to the great traditions. We're enjoying unity with each other and with other Christians. And because we know that God, the Lord of the harvest, is wanting, moved by compassion to, to move in people's lives in this world through us, through supernatural means. That's a lot of things that should be driving us to engaging in the dark and hard and painful pieces of life. The people are hungry for good news and we're holding back. People are dying for a new way to live and are exhausted and we're holding back. People are struggling in silence and we're not even asking the questions to join them in. We should be moved, having found what we found in Jesus for ourselves. We should have ears to hear and eyes to hear the suffering of the world around us and be moved by compassion to offer Jesus. And so I realize that in our discipleship process, for many of us in the Canadian church, these things have been laid out and locked in for us. But my hope for today would be that we would grow in our confidence. Grow knowing that we're being sent out by Jesus with the message in line with the apostles, in, in consistency with the tradition of the church, in unity and in the power of Christ's ministry to the world. So if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes and take a moment to receive that to your heart by faith.